you between a rock and a hard place? Are you not sure if you're a sinner or a saint? Do you think you've lost your salvation? Let me take you to the New King James Version. In the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, and Jesus says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Welcome to Save the Lost at All Costs. Posted by Save the Lost at All Costs, Inc. Featuring your sister in Christ and humble servant of the Lord, Nina S. Griffin. Good afternoon. I know it's been a while since you heard this voice, but I am Sister Nina S. Griffin, and you're listening to Save the Lost at All Costs. We're going to open up the phone lines right away. If you're local, you will dial 702-650-5588 to join in on our discussion today. If you have a praise report, have a prayer request, we'd love to hear from you again. Locally, you will dial 702-650-5588. If you're calling outside the Las Vegas area, we do have a toll-free number for you. That would be 800 800- I say again, that toll-free number would be 800-366-8883. We're also being streamed live from KKVV's website, which is www.kkvv.com. Hello and God bless. I just waved to you. And we're also being streamed live from Save the Lost at All Costs website. And our website address is www.savethelostlv.org. If you have missed any of our previous broadcasts, again, please go to our website, www.savethelostlv.org. Click on to any message that you'd like to listen to. Uh, We would be so honored that you would listen. And the gospel is always free on our watch. So there's no charge. And we're also being archived at iTunes. So if you have an Apple device, you can catch us on iTunes. And again, the gospel is always free on our watch. Now we have a cell number that you can call and you can join in to listen to us right now or listen to KKVV anytime you like. And that cell number would be 563-999-3194. It only works in the United States, but I'm going to give it to you again. 563 563- triple nine nine one nine four i really encourage you to lock that into your cell phone devices and listen to kkvv they're doing a wonderful job and you can always listen to us as well now i've done that i want to give a special thanks to uh, minister susan parham Randallstown, Maryland. She blessed us for the last two weeks and she really made the case on what is true conversion. If you weren't able to listen into the broadcast, the last two weeks are posted on the website. I really, really encourage you to uh, listen to what Minister Parham had to say. Uh, it's coming straight from the Bible. Uh, the two weeks she quoted at least a hundred scriptures and the memory verse is Acts 2.38. So if you want to know what true conversion is, uh, remember Acts 2.28, but you will bless yourself tremendously. Uh, I love you, Sister Susan, and God bless you. Of course, uh, Brother Tim blessed us a couple of weeks before. 
It was powerful. Uh, we've had some real wonderful men and women of God to uh, step in and intercess and really, really uh, bless our community. So we thank God for that. I want to give a shout out to Pastor Joseph E. Terry, Jr. Uh, Pastor, uh, I'll take in a rain check today, but I know we'll get together soon. I love you. And naturally, I'm praying for not just part of you, but all of you and your family too. I have to give a shout out to my niece, uh, Shayla. How are you, woman of God? She is on her way to Arizona, to Grand Canyon University. Uh, in less than 24 hours, she'll be a freshman. So uh, Shayla, I love you. I know that you bring the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere with you. And I know the Grand Canyon University just got better, just to even know that you're coming. So make us proud. Continue to proclaim the gospel and do well in your studies. We're expecting big things out of you. We've been investing in you, and we want to reap a return on our investment. No pressure. We love you. Okay. Our message for today is, are we staying focused? And this message goes out to those who are doing the work of the gospel. Are we staying focused? So we're going to look at a couple of areas uh, in the Bible today. And uh, we're going to start with something that's very contemporary that's happening now. Uh, you see a lot of things that are on the news as reference to uh, race relations. And um, there are a lot of people who are out uh, marching, you know, protesting. You have, you know, those who have one belief, those who have another belief. Uh, there's only one belief with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to uh, prepare you for some things and give you some historical background in a contemporary sense. And I'll be able to tie it into a biblical sense. So this is a, a very weighty lesson. You know, are we staying focused? And the thing is, is that we got to remember that. OK, stay focused. So. Let's get into this. Uh, the first piece I'm going to share with you is by a gentleman named uh, Joshua Zeit. That's uh, Z-E-I-T-Z. And he wrote a piece that uh, was published today, and it's called Why There Are No Nazi Statues in Germany. Now, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he wrote a book called Lincoln's Boys, John Hay, John Nicoloy, and the... War on Lincoln's Image. He also taught American history and politics at Cambridge University and Princeton University. Uh, he is truly a historian and he uh, actually does contribute to Political Magazine. So I want to get into his piece. And again, I said I want to tie this in to uh, the Word of God. So I want you to prepare your hearts and minds and to receive some real important uh, information and let's uh, let the Holy Spirit do its work. Now, again, this piece is called Why There Are No Nazi Statues in Germany. Whatever else I may forget, the ex-slave and, ab and abolitionist Frederick Douglass said in 1894, I shall never forget the difference between those who fought for liberty and those who fought for slavery. That's the end of the quote. Douglas, who is doing an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, deplored an emerging national consensus that the Civil War had been fought over vague philosophical disagreements about federalism and states' rights, but not over the core issue of slavery. In this retelling, 
neither side was right or wrong, and both Confederate and Union soldiers were to be celebrated for their battlefield valor. Douglas was right to be concerned. Southerners may have lost the Civil War, but between the 1890s and 1920s, they won the first great battle over its official memory. They fought that battle in popular literature, history books, and college curricula, but also on hundreds of courthouse steps and city squares where they erected monuments of Confederate veterans and martyrs. These statues reinforced the romance of reunion. Now, a century and a half after the Civil War, Americans are finally confronting the proprietary of celebrating the lives of men who committed treason in the name of preserving slavery. That these statues even exist is unusual. When armies are defeated on their own soil, particularly when those armies fight to promote racist or genocidal policies, they usually don't get to keep their symbols and material culture. As some commentators have noted, Germany in 1945 is a useful comparison. Flags were torn down while defeated cities still burned, even as citizens crawling from the rubble were just realizing that the governments they represented had ended, wrote a reporter for McClatchy. Most physical relics of the Nazi regime were banished from public view. In this sense, the example of Germany's post-war denazification may offer a way forward for the United States. Yet history tells a more compelling story. In its initial years, denazification had only limited impact. It would take time, generational change, and external events to make Germany what it is today a vibrant democracy that is notable less permissive of racism, extremism, and fascism than the United States. Tearing down the symbols of Nazi terror was a necessary first step, but it didn't ensure overnight political or cultural transformation. It required a longer process of public reconciliation with history for Germans to acknowledge their shared responsibility for the legacy of Nazism. The vast majority of Americans have long agreed that the destruction of slavery was a just outcome of the Civil War. But, it, but in continuing to honor Confederate leaders and deny their crimes, we signal that the United States has not yet fully come to terms with its collective responsibility for the dual sins of slavery and Jim Crow. In the late 19th century, Southern veterans of the Civil War essentially concluded that it made little sense to persist in their argument that slavery had been a just, benign social and political system. That argument was simply no longer credible in the eyes of most Northerners, many of whom might have conceded the point before the war, or most civilized nations. However, brave rebel soldiers might have been on the field, argued a report for the Grand Camp of Confederate Veterans of Virginia, teetering the lost cause to the memory of slavery would hold Confederate veterans degraded rather than worthy of honor. Our children, instead of revering their fathers, would be secretly, if not openly, ashamed. 
Instead, Confederate organizations, particularly the United Confederate Veterans, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, whose local chapters funded and organized the construction of many of the monuments that are now in contention, de-emphasized the, ide the ideology origins of the war, and instead promoted a powerful but vague cult of Southern chivalry, battlefield valor, and regional pride. They recast the war as a battle over principles of states' rights and Southern honor. Hundreds of cities across the U.S. commissioned monuments to their war dead, statues that were usually situated directly in town squares or by county courthouses, and which paid homage to men who fought and sometimes died to preserve chattel slavery, an institution that Vice President Alexander Steffens called the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Not only did these organizations erase slavery from the narrative, they also brushed over the topics of rebellion and treason. During the war, many Confederate soldiers happily accepted the label Reb, but the new wardens of local memory attempted to resituate the Confederacy without constitutional norms. Was your father a rebel and a traitor? Asked a typical handbill. Did he fight in the service of the Confederacy for the purpose of defeating the Union? Or was he a patriot fighting for the liberties granted him under the Constitution in defense of his native land and for a cause he knew to be right? The major organizations rejected the once popular designation for the conflict, the War of Rebellion, and instead promoted an alternative designation, the War Between the States. Generations of schoolchildren would call it that. These Southern revisionists found support from many Northerners who by the 1890s were eager to move beyond the memory of war and reconstruction and whose fleeting racial liberalism hardened in the face of mass immigration and scientific racism, both of which took root in the late 19th century. At blue and gray battlefield reunions, former enemies donned the uniforms they had worn as young men to celebrate and remember their shared experience in combat. Even an erstwhile abolitionist like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who nearly died multiple times on the battlefield, came to argue later in life that the faith is true and adorable, which leads a soldier to throw away his life in obedience to a blindly accepted duty and a cause which he little understands and a plan of campaign of which he has little notion under tactics of which he does not see the use. In fact, Holmes understood perfectly well why he fought, like most of the country, northern and south alike. He simply chose to forget. He simply chose to forget. In the years immediately following its surrender to Allied forces in World War II, Germany underwent a much different process from the American South in the wake of Civil War. Whereas the vast majority of Confederate civilian and military officials suffered no great penalty, 
than the confiscation of property and temporary loss of voting rights. In Germany, top military and government officials were tried and sentenced to prison or execution. In the Western Zone, U.S. and British administrators established denazification panels and filtered through 16 million questionnaires. They identified 3.5 million former Nazis, many of whom were fired from government posts. Libraries were stripped of Nazi books and periodicals. Fascist newspapers shuttered and all physical vestiges of the old regime removed and destroyed. In 1949, the Federal Republic of Germany, which is West Germany, criminalized the display of swastikas. The symbol was also scraped and sometimes blown off of buildings. The federal state systematically destroyed statues and monuments, raised many Nazi architectural structures, and buried, executed military and civilian officials in mass unmarked graves so that their resting grounds would not become Nazi shrines. If the physical denazification of Germany was absolute, and it was, it proved harder to effect a spiritual purge of the country's recent fascist past. To rebuild the country, America occupiers found that it was all but impossible to find reasonably competent Germans who had not been affiliated or associated in some way with the Nazi regime, according to General Lucas Clay in Cologne. Fully 18 of the 21 employees of the city's waterworks were former Nazis. American authorities faced a stark choice. Let the city's supply of potable water go dry or let the Nazis keep their jobs? The answer was obvious. Towns and cities needed to be administered. The court system needed to function. Police departments required staff. Children needed to attend school. Though half of all Bavarian teachers were initially fired for their Nazi membership, by 1948, most of them were back in the classroom. Fully, 94% of Bavarian judges and prosecutors were ex-Nazis, and one-third of foreign ministry employees in Bonn, the West Germany capital. Though statues have been blown up and flags burned or shredded, many Germans in the 1950s resisted political re-education. Allied officials sometimes required adults to view footage of liberated concentration camps before they could receive ration cards. One memorist recalled that the most of the people he sat with in a theater in Frankfurt turned their heads and simply refused to watch the film. Five years after the war, surveys revealed that one-third of the country thought the Nuremberg war crime trials had been unfair. Majorities believed that Nazism had been a good idea, badly applied, and consistently over a third of the population continued to prefer that the country be free of Jews. As late as 1955, 48% of respondents felt that Hitler would have been one of Germany's greatest leaders, but for the war. The physical destruction of the iconography, in other words, was not instant antidote to extreme ideology. It wasn't until the 1960s and the 1970s that Germany reckoned fully with the moral weight of its Nazi legacy. A string of events thrust the topic into full consciousness from belated public investigations into German war crimes on the Eastern Front to Israel's capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann 
and criminal trials in Frankfurt of Auschwitz concentration camp guards. During the first 15 years of the post-war era, German schools buried any mention of the Holocaust or other Nazi atrocities. Later, they slowly incorporated such subject matter in the curriculum. The Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, and Massacre of Israeli Athletes during the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich generated widespread empathy towards Israel. When West German television ran a Gazi American ministry, excuse me, miniseries Holocaust in 1979, 20 million viewers watched all four evenings of the broadcast. The production was dreadful, but it galvanized German public opinion in a way that much higher quality series roots compelled many Americans to examine the legacy of slavery two years earlier. The generation of Germans that came of age in the 1970s and 80s confronted the country's Nazis past and forcibly repudiated it. It took over decades of hard self-reflection, but a reunified Germany emerged from the Cold War as one of the greatest mainstays of democracy and human rights. If just removing statues and icons doesn't force a change in outlook, venerating and fetishizing them and refusing to be honest about their meaning almost ensures that the country won't fully confront its past. The Southern Poverty Law Center rightly points out the vast majority of statues, streets, and schools dedicated to the memory of the Confederacy date from the period between 1890 and 1930, Four decades when the legal, cultural, and political edifice of Jim Crow was under heavy construction. Another memorable spat followed after 1954 in response to the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education and coincidentally the 100th anniversary of the war's outbreak. The statues were blunt instruments in institutionalizing white supremacy and blotting out the dual sins excuse me, of treason and slavery. In recent days, prominent never-Trump Republican operatives have taken the unusual step of advising Democrats not to fall into a monument trap. The president wants to turn the conversation to Confederate Kish, which means, excuse me, which many white Americans continue to view as benign and non-ideological. Focus instead on Trump's oddly solicitous posture towards Nazis, Klansmen, and heavily armed militiamen playing dress-up in front of synagogues and places of public accommodation. It's probably smart political advice, but it still elides the central problem. As long as we continue to perpetrate the myth of Confederate innocence, the ideal that good men on both sides fought over distant abstractions and then came together again in brotherhood, we continue to lie to ourselves. In Germany, you won't see neo-Nazis converging on a monument to Reinhard Heydrich or Adolf Hitler because no such statue exists. The country long ago came to grips with the full weight of its history. But you'll find Nazis and Klansmen in Virginia encircling a statue of Robert E. Lee, a traitor who raised arms against his own country in defense of white supremacy and slavery. How do we explain to the descendants of his victims, fallen Union soldiers and widows, and so many millions of slaves that Robert E. Lee doesn't deserve the same eternal infamy as Eichmann or Heydrich? It's an excellent question. So... Again, what I just read you 
was a piece that appeared uh, today, and it was called Why There Are No Nazi Statues in Germany. Now, let's tie that in biblically. That was a lot to digest, but uh, we need to have some information that is correct, and you can do some research, and uh, I think you'll be blessed by it. So, the human race. That's race. The human race. That's the only race. So I'm making that statement and I'm going to go to Genesis 17 and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 14. I'm coming from uh, the New King James Version and I'm going to find some other scriptures in the Bible. And I think uh, you will see why we have to stay focused as those that do the work of the kingdom and not be distracted. We need to stay focus and we have to go back to the genesis and this is part what the paper was talking about you have to go back to where it all began and see what was being proclaimed and expound at that time why did it differ because people tried to marginalize it and tried to make it acceptable slavery is never acceptable Oppression is never acceptable for the mere fact to own something, to make money off of it and consider it chattel. No, that's never acceptable. So let's look at Genesis 17 verses 1 through 14. And again, I'm in the New King James Version. And the word of God says this. Now, the subheading says the sign of the covenant. Chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. 3, then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, for as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. Five, no longer shall your name be called Abram. Your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Six, I will make. Let me go to the next page. You exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Seven, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Eight, also I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. As an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Nine. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generation. Ten. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Eleven. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Twelve. He who is eight 
days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. 13. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 14. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh or his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people and has broken my covenant. Abraham, it said several times what God made him. And it said clearly that I have made you a father of many nations. Despite what our outward appearance looks like, we all come from one. And we are a part of the human race. And we that do the work and those of us who believe, we believe every word of the Bible, every dot, every comma. And we are one in the spirit with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He did not differentiate. He died for all men, not some men. And we find that out in John 3.16. So to idolize a myth, to believe in something and try to hold it up as great as God nationalism, tribalism, outward appearances for those who believe that's contrary and totally against what the word of God is teaching. That does not represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we really have to examine what it is that we're holding on to so fast and true when he is truth and he never taught any of that. He didn't, he didn't promote idolatry. Matter of fact, it's very clear in Exodus that you're not supposed to have any graving images. There's nothing that you should have that should usurp God's authority. And position in your life. He is the most high God. Of all creation. Of all heaven. Of all earth. So how can anything. Have any supremacy. He is supreme. So if you mention God's name. God the Father. God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. That we were made in their image. And they used the word our image. Genesis one twenty six. It is apparent that monuments and statues are empty and hollow and are considered whitewashed tombs. They have no power. They did no work of salvation. They offer no gift of repentance. They have no place in heaven. There won't be any monuments or statues. There won't be any myths 
or ideologies. There won't be anything that you would have to do a revision on. The word of God is the same as it was in the past, as it is today, as it will ever be. There's no revision needed. Christ does not need a do-over. If anything, we need to change our hearts and our mind for those of us who do the work. We need to do it first in our own homes and communities. If we're going to represent the body of Christ, if we're going to be the ecclesia, if we're going to be the called out ones. Because you cannot have hypocrisy and believe that God is a part of that. And the kingdom will bear witness to that. And we all have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those things that we do and those things that we didn't do. There will be an accounting for commission and omission. You cannot act as if you don't know the truth. There will be a day of reckoning. And we have a great opportunity to do what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to do. The Great Commission. He knows our hearts. And we have an opportunity to repent, to get in right standing, to admit that we didn't believe as we should have believed. We have a great opportunity. As long as you still have breath in your body, you have a great opportunity. Don't miss it. Don't get caught up. Get yourself in right standing because only what you do for Christ will last. We're going to go over to Galatians chapter 3 and we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. But on my way to Galatians, I want to go to Malachi first because I'm in the Old Testament. So let me get to Malachi. We're going to get to Galatians. Just bear with me. So I'm going to go to Malachi chapter 2 and I'm going to look at verses 9 through 11 and in this particular uh, context Judah's unfaithfulness is being shown it's being bared out and God will have none of it anymore and Malachi is the man of God that God has chosen the prophet to rebuke the priest the priest These are the men that serve in the house of God. God is not going to cut his workers and servants any slack. Matter of fact, he's going to hold you to a higher standard. We that do the work of the kingdom, we who proclaim to be servants, humble servants of the most high God, You don't want to present yourself as a hypocrite in God's house. You will not be able to withstand the wrath of God. 
Make no mistake. If you want a taste, if you want a glimpse, then let's look at Malachi chapter 2. And let's look at verses 9 through 11. Again, I'm coming out of the New King James Version. And this is what the Word of God says. Verse 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Wow. He said in front of all the people, it will be made known. And it says, has not one God created us? Have we not all one father? You have to ask yourself. You got to think about that. Those who believe, do we not have all of us together one father? Has not one God created us? That's going to set the tone. How you answer those questions. And if you're doing separation and you're showing partiality, then you're transgressing his law. You're not following the scriptures. And you will be dealt with publicly. He called it an abomination. Make sure you take that in in your spirit. It's important. We're still on our way to Galatians 3. Chapter, uh, chapter 3 verses 6 and 9. But on the way I need to stop by Acts 17. I'm getting there. Let's go to Acts 17. Now here we have the Apostle Paul. And he is in a place in Athens where he is speaking to the Greeks of the Greeks, the hierarchy. And the place where he's speaking is called the Areopagus. And I'm going to look at Acts 17 and we're going to go verses 22 through verse 34. And again, I'm in the New King James Version. Acts 17 verse 22. And the word of God says this. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 23. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. 26, he and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointment times. Excuse me. <coughs> he has determined their pre-appointed times. And the boundaries of their dwellings. 27. So that they should seek the Lord. In the hope that they might grope for him. And find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. 28. For in him we live and move. And have our being. As also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think <coughs> that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. 33, Paul departed from among them. 34, however, some men joined him but believed among Dionysus and the, let's see, Areopagite, a woman named Damaris and others with them. Wow. Paul made the case. He said, I will proclaim him that is unknown to you. That they were worshiping. They were worshiping an unknown God. He said, but I will proclaim who he is. And the thing that we have to see here in Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. One blood. One blood. And he's not reduced to anything that's made of a man's hands. It is he who gives all life, breath, and all things. Anything that you could imagine. It doesn't come from a man. It comes from the creator of man. God, we must be very careful 
with the ideologies that we accept and that we promote in God's name. We look a certain way because it's God's plan and purpose. But make no mistake, we come from one blood. We represent one nation. This is what the word of God says. Now, Paul went to the learned of the learned. This place is also known as Mars Hill. And it was in ancient Athens. It was on a hill where the highest Greek governmental council and judicial court met in open air to discuss cases of serious nature. Paul was presenting God to them. He was making the case. Now, whether they received it or not, that was on them. But he said, I am proclaiming him to you. When is the last time you have proclaimed the one true God to somebody? And not mixed him in and reduced him to a ritual or standard operating procedure or something that you call proprietary information or denominational information. Don't do him a disservice like that. More so, don't do yourself a disservice like that. You have to give an account for what it is you're promoting and professing. Paul had no problem. He wanted to speak to the hierarchy. He wanted them to know, you think you're sitting on a hill. You think you're in a position. You're human. You're no way can compare yourself to the most high God. Who could have that said about them? That they were responsible for anything that's alive, anything that breathes, and for anything else you might think of. Who who would have that attribute? A man? Sitting on a hill? Part of a council? No. Paul wanted to let them know. He cared about them. Cared about their souls. Cared about their eternity. He cared so much about them. He wanted them to know the truth. Even if his life was on the line. It was just that important. And these were the high Greeks. They weren't the common ones. These were the highest of the high. Amazing that Paul wants to make sure that even they knew. Sometimes those are the people we need to seek. Those that assume that they're in a very high place. Because everybody dies. And everyone will spend Someplace in eternity. They just have to decide where they want to spend it. But make no mistake. It will be eternal. So now we're going to go to Galatians chapter 3. I've been trying to get here. And I want to look at verses uh, 6 through 9. 
So, let me start with verse 5. You know what? I think it's important that we start at verse 1 and we'll go through verse 9. Because it's so rich. I want to make sure that you guys get it. So again, Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to start with verse 1. And the word of God says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified too? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Three, are you so foolish Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? For have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, five, therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it for the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Six, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Seven, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Eight, and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Nine, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. We're going to take a call. Hello, you on Save the Lost at All Costs, and God bless you. Yeah, Minister Nina, God bless you. God bless you, too. How you doing, Pastor Terry? Oh, uh, I'm holding up. Uh, had better days, but I know we're almost out of time, so I just wanted to compliment you on the subject matter of the day and the way you presented it. But I wanted to say this to the listening audience. Donald Trump, who is our president, I accept the fact that he was voted in, and I respect the office. But he has tainted his integrity, one, as a believer, because he claimed to be, and then he has really just bludgeoned the integrity of the office. And I know you've already given enough biblical information and enough theology I just want those people who are following him to take into consideration that there is a judgment day coming. And all I can say is that my prayers go out for those who are misguided, those who are deceived, and those who are without knowledge. Paul would put it this way, I would have you not to be ignorant, my brethren. Anyway, I was ready to go today, but, you know, God wanted this message to go forth that you are delivering now. So God bless you. Uh, God bless you more. And thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. Love you. Well, the Word of God clearly tells us that we should pray for one another and hold each other up. So I'm asking in the name of Jesus, that we do that, that we pray for one another, that we hold each other up, that you get an accountability partner. 
and make sure that you're studying the scriptures together. Make sure you're walking this journey correctly. You know, it would just be a terrible thing to have lived your life, your whole life, for nothing. It is important that we understand that death is real. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to be born twice and die once? Or do you want to be born once and die twice? I'll expound upon that. But think about that. Let it resonate in your system. Because in order to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be reborn again. You have a natural birth that you came to this world by your mother. But you have to have a spiritual birth. You have to be circumcised in the spirit. And the only way you can do that is to be reborn again. We're all going to die. But you would die once and you would have eternal life. Or... You can be born once of a natural birth, die a physical death, and have a second death, which would be eternal separation from God. The choice is yours. There are all types of leaders that are put before you. And we're all sinners. And we all fall short. But it's your choice. Who you want to follow. I choose the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of my life. He's who I want to serve. He's who I want to be associated with. He's who I want to get to know more. He's who I hunger for. He's who I thirst for. He's who I live my life for. I cannot imagine my life without my Lord and Savior. I presented some real important information to you, especially those who do the work of the kingdom. Go back to the Genesis. Make sure you understand what it is you're proclaiming and promoting. And if it has anything to do with the color of your skin, tribalism, nationalism, Geography, you've missed it. That does not honor God. Humble yourself. Turn back to your first love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for all men, not some men. Know that the blood that you carry in your veins is of one nation, of one blood. We love you. Talk to you next week. Save the loss at all costs and God bless. It is our humble prayer that the Most High God of all creation and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, continues to bless you and yours without cease for tuning in today and supporting this great move of God with your generous donations. Save the Lost at All Costs is a Holy Spirit-filled, live-called-in weekly radio ministry that has been airing since 2005 and serving in the greater Las Vegas community. We can be heard every Sunday at 3.02 p.m. Pacific Standard 
time on Las Vegas' very own Christian Talk radio stations, 1060 AM and 101.5 FM. Also, we are audio and video streamed in real time during our live broadcast at www.kkvv.com and our website, www.savethelostlv.org. If you would like to re-listen to a previous broadcast at no charge, make an online secure donation, or learn more about our ministry, please visit our website at www.savethelostlv.org. If you prefer, you can mail in a donation. Address it to Save the Lost at All Cost, Inc., P.O. Box number 335852, North Las Vegas, 89033. Again, our P.O. Box number is 335852, North Las Vegas, 89033. All donations made to Save the Lost at All Cost, Inc. are 100% tax deductible. For more information, please feel free to call or text us at 702-219-6882. Again, 702-219-6882. We would like to thank you again. Remember to remain in Christ, stay prayed up, tune in, and don't forget to save the lost at all costs, no matter what.